Hi, I'm Ben, your host for the next hour, and you're listening to a Virgin Startup podcast produced with the support from our friends at Virgin Money. The podcasts are recordings of our free meetups, which take place every month. Check out virginstartup.org slash events to sign up for the next one. I've got to say, I went a bit nuts over this interview. A one-to-one chat with one of my favorite founders in the UK, Pippa Murray from Pip and Nut. I'll tip a nut onto the uh, Virgin Startup stage. Here she is. Hello. Pip and Nut Kitchen. Hello, Pip. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me this evening. Oh, thanks for being here. We've got um, people joining us and there's a lot of shout outs here from um, food startups. So we've got Amy, who's the co-founder of Nella Nella Tea. I hope I've said that right. Um, Jasmine from a creative branding studio. Uh, We've got, uh, oh, here goes, second coffee startup, founder of Beans. Uh, Beans around the world, uh, Kishan is here. So welcome, everybody. Um, so excited to talk to you, Pip. Now, before we get into the the deep questions, um, I've got someone here who wants to say hello. So let me just see if they're available. Um, oh, here we go. Oh, God. Is that a squirrel? Well, um, come on, don't deny you don't know. Hang on, hang on I'm just going to have a... Oh, I normally only hang out with the red squirrels, you see. Okay, okay, you can have, yeah, two two quick questions, all right? Two, is it all right if you can have two quick questions <laughs> from the gray squirrel? Uh, the first first question, first question is, uh, the, and he's called Nut. He wants to say he's called Nut. Uh, nut would like to know is um, what your favorite uh, nut butter of all time is that you've made? Oof, uh, coconut almond butter. It's, um, yeah, one of the first recipes I ever made and it was inspired by a macaroon. So it's, it's holds a place in my heart. I mean, we're talking luxury nut butter there, macaroon inspired. Um, and and uh, you've got one more. Okay, yep. You sure you want to ask that? Okay, okay, right, fine. Okay, I'll ask it. Um, what are um, nut here? What are his best qualities as a as one of your team members? What does he bring to the table? Sorry, my which who me? The, why him? Oh, sorry, nut. Sorry. Yeah. Nut. What does your what does your what does his squirrel bring to the party in, in Pippa Nut? Um, he's cute and fluffy, loads of personality, um, very positive little squirrel. So yeah, without him, we wouldn't have like such a great brand. So oh well, there you go. That's why you got such a massive chunk of equity, isn't it? Isn't it not? <laughs> yes. He says I'm going to see you on the. Uh, look forward to floating on the uh, TikTok market yes okay right go go away fine it's over um so life before nuts uh pip what were you doing before you started uh making this wonderful product yeah good question i um was 24 when i first came up with the idea so i guess i didn't have a particularly long career in my um in my traditional sort of career i guess um i was a theater producer of all things so i was working on i was working at the science museum and it's just on exhibition road in london and i was producing various different bits of children's theater which i'd always thought after university i, I studied anthropology and geography so it was very much more on the kind of social sciences side of things had more of a creative brain than i did uh one that was maybe more like you know business minded i guess and yeah, I was one of those people that really didn't know what they wanted to do when they left university or when they were growing up. I kind of just went towards things that I found interesting and inspiring. And so that led me to theatre after university. And yeah, I can't really say many things crossed over from Nutbusser to theatre, unfortunately for me. But um, what I would say is that I don't think it's important when you are starting something up to either have firstly experience in what it is that you're about to go into. I think you can sometimes have an advantage by being inexperienced and just going full throttle um, into the world of food and drink or whatever industry it is that you're stepping into. And yeah, I, I don't think you always need to necessarily be like a classic entrepreneur as well. I don't believe that those are people that are just born. I think you can make a business uh, an entrepreneur. So I'm certainly one of those people that, yeah, never thought I'd be where I am today, but very happy that I am because it's been an incredible sort of seven, eight years running this business. And so that first step on your entrepreneurial journey was what, Pip? What connected you with Nut Butters? Yeah, I think I think like a lot of things, it's um, so many different things that kind of weave together that make end up making you go down a certain journey. So I think from a really early age, food has been a really like pivotal part of my upbringing. I'm a bit from a big family. I've got three older sisters. 
we're all very greedy. Um, so naturally I ate a lot and, you know, I used to cook from a really early age for my family at 12. I was sort of cooking meals for my, my mum and dad and my sisters. So I always loved being in the kitchen. And I think being in London, as I have been for the last 15 years, I've also had this like amazing doorstep of incredible food to kind of be inspired by. So I think I'd always had like an interest. I just didn't necessarily realise it was a career I was going to go down until I guess I became well, I was doing lots of marathon running when I was in my early 20s, real kind of passion of mine. I'm still a runner now. And back then, nearly every sort of product that I picked up within this category, peanut butter, um, all contained palm oil. They, a lot of them contain a lot of stuff in there that just didn't need to be in there. But fundamentally, which is really processed and not particularly natural. And as someone that was a bit more health orientated, but also someone that loves food, I just this product got under my skin I was like there's definitely room in this category which is growing naturally because of trends like protein and sort of health uh, in the wider kind of sphere there's a room in this category for like a more challenger brand to bring something that was better for you and better for the planet as well and I guess that's what started me thinking and thinking there was a gap because you know if you're working in food and drink and if you walk the aisles of a supermarket you know, it can sometimes be quite overwhelming. You think, where are there gaps in, in, in the market to be able to bring something new? And I guess sometimes when you do launch a business or create a brand, it's, it's about finding small niches within niches that you can exploit. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a totally new, innovative product, but it can be a spin on something that already exists. So for me, I saw an opportunity for a product that didn't contain palm oil, that was really delicious, had lots of different flavors, and importantly, had a brand that was much more appealing to a younger shopper, a more lifestyle shopper. Um, so that, those are the things that started to get my like, kind of, I guess, my brain ticking over it and thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna at least start in the way that I know how. In, in hindsight, it, it, and listening to you now, it sounds like a very clear analysis of the problem and the, and the vision to build what you what you've gone on and built. What did you then do to try and turn this this inkling and, and itch into a reality? Yeah, I, I think one of the beauties of food and drink is that you can often take something that is, you know, in your mind quite quickly into a tangible product. Um, mm. And I was lucky that the product that I had in mind was something that you could genuinely make in your kitchen to a really good standard. So I, I didn't have any food and drink background. So I started how I knew, which was buy a blender, buy some nuts, buy some ingredients and just start making up some recipes. And it was pretty, pretty basic um, at the time. And there wasn't particularly anything fancy or kind of necessarily the brand that I was looking to create, but it was a way of starting, I guess. And I started it in my kitchen and I took and made maybe 200 jars at a time and I'd take them down to markets at the weekends whilst I st still did my day job and I would sell them to the public as a way of just testing out the recipes that I'd created and just really trying to build my confidence because I think, I don't know, it can feel like a long way when you have like an idea in your mind and then you think, how the hell am I meant to get onto the supermarket shelves? Like that feels like a really long, like big job. Uh, whereas at least starting by like creating something in your kitchen and getting some positive feedback from consumers is like a really nice way to start the ball rolling. And hopefully, if you feel that you get enough positive feedback in those kind of early stages, it gives you that confidence to maybe take the next jump, which is, in my case, you know, trying to find a manufacturer who would help me make the products. And where was that first market put? It was down in um, South London, a market called Maltby Street. Um, okay. so I don't know if you know, it's near Borough Market. So it's a kind of similar kind of style. And I loved it because like, you have all like the street food traders who you kind of do all your swaps during the day. So I used to eat really well on those days because you'd you'd trade like nut butter for like, I don't know, some delicious salmon or something, um, which is fun. Yeah, but you're part of that community and culture and got you excited. So you you got that positive feedback. You had the first yeah. version of Pip and Nut. What, what did you do next? Yeah, I think I'd always aspirationally wanted a brand that was in everyone's cupboards. You know, I wanted to have a national brand. So whilst you know, absolutely, you could keep carry on pursuing markets and building your product and brand in that way. It's um, one way of doing it. But for me, I knew I needed to scale up the product in some form to be able to supply supermarkets in order to meet consumers up and down the UK. That was, for me, the key. So finding a manufacturer is difficult. Like, for anyone that's done it, it is, 
like finding a needle in a haystack. You, they don't advertise themselves. They don't often want to be found by small startups. They'd rather speak to a Tesco or a big supermarket where they can get big volumes. So you have to do a lot of um, a lot of digging. And, and, and some of the ways that I found or ended up getting to the factory that we worked with in, when we launched was word of mouth. I think speaking to other people in the industry, often food, people in like specifically food development are a good port of call. They're also going to lots of trade fairs. And every time you speak to a factory and they say no to you, you often then say, well, who else do you know that might be able to do it? And they might give you a name of one or two more people, which you can then go and knock on their door. So scaling that product up is fundamental. You've got to be able to have a product that has um, the right margins for everyone along the way for has to be the right price for a consumer needs to be the right price for a retailer to be able to make enough money on it. And then you need to make enough money on it as well at the end of the day. So for me, that was about finding a good partner that could could get those kind of, I guess, um, scales and economies um, that I needed to get the product out the door. And once I found that, which took about eight months, to be honest, to find that factory, a lot of no's, lots of kind of slightly awkward conversations later, finally landed a factory that wanted to work with me. And, and that was really like the, the door unlocking and suddenly being like, right, I think I've got a business that I can, I can do. So I could start working on branding. I could start you know, thinking about raising money because those are the other two big jobs that I knew I needed to do once I had the product. Sort of it asked. reminds me of a conversation I had with the Oppo brothers, you know, the ice cream yeah. uh, startup when they were like, right, we've got, it was every time they needed to make a batch of ice cream, they'd have to go to the factory in Scotland and it cost them £2,000 and they had £18,000. So they had nine goes and it failed nine times in a row. And then, <laughs> and then, and then they were like, well, that's it, it's over. And then, of course, they won a competition the start yeah. competition got two thousand pounds. They're like, we got one more shot, and then and then it worked, um, which is nice. But it is that kind of you've got to be prepared to be like with fundraising, knock back a few times. So you've yeah. got you found your manufacturer. What? How did you then get onto that next stage with the fundraising? I think this is probably maybe where we might have crossed paths. There are paths over, overlapped. So I guess the context of this is that I was twenty four at the time, so I didn't necessarily have lots of like money rolling around in my bank account. I was kind of very much a bootstrapped startup. And so I remember at the time, I was still working uh, part-time at the Science Museum. I kind of needed to get the product out the door, but I was still kind of um, trying to juggle my day job. And I came across a competition, and it was actually from a friend, and they'd fired it over to me saying, you know, you should apply to this. And it was from a, a company called Escape the City, which, Ben, I know you've got close links to. And Escape the City, we're running a competition called Escape to the Shed. And this competition was to allow one startup which you had to like fight through a competition to win one startup to live rent free and have desk space at their head office. Um, the catch was that the rent free was three months living in a garden shed, which was in the back office, back garden of their head office, which at the time, I don't think I really thought about when I applied. I thought this sounds great. I can live rent free in London and not have to worry about my overhead. So I applied on a bit of a whim. And like a month later, I ended up getting a call from one of the co-founders, uh, Dom, and he I picked up the phone. I remember it clearly. I was standing on Exhibition Road by the Science Museum and he said, Pip, you've won the competition. You can move in whenever you want. And it was this horrible dawn of like, shit, I've actually got to follow through with this. Um, and I quit my job an hour later and I moved into the shed in a, a few weeks later and spent three months living in their shed, working from their HQ. That's when I met Ben, um, who was really inspiring as well on that journey. And yeah, I used that time whilst I was sort of in that sort of grace period, I guess, um, to raise the money on Crowdcube. And I, I used that summer when I was staying with them to build my crowdfunding campaign. And I went live with that Crowdcube campaign and I raised £120,000 within seven days on that site. And then that gave me the fuel to go. And I haven't looked back since. So haven't had to get another job, thankfully. Um, but it's all one, it's the, the, your escape to the shed story is one of my favorite, like startup <laughs> moments. And that fact you, you fact you quit an hour later, then you were like, Oh, crap, I've got to live in a shed. Just to give some context for everyone watching. Um, this, it, the shed was okay, wasn't it? It was like, I remember I, I helped put it up. And I was like, this is quite nice. I live in here. But in terms of like a garden, it was, it was a bit of gravel outside the back door yeah. of the office. I mean, the office was nice, but it wasn't anything grand at all. But I was like, whoever does this is going to be quite brave. 
Um, and I remember the runner-up of that competition was Charlie from Moju Drinks. Yeah, um, who got, yeah, exactly. Who got some desk space, I think. Didn't, didn't get a shed, but got some desk space and ended up building Moju into what it is now and is alongside, you know, Pippa Nut in, in, in big supermarkets. So two really good stories came from that competition. And the point was, is that competition, again, was a kind of Dom Jackman at Escape City saying, oh, what else could we do this summer? We've got this bit of space outside. So I think it's it's such a good example. And we see this a lot now. You do it brilliantly with prizes on Instagram where you team up with other founders and startups you say how can we come together and do something to create create some some fun and buzz um yeah, and, I, and i think there's something to be said whether you have your own garden shed or something else like that is that it's that idea of like you make your own luck which i do think it is that you've got to put yourself out there you've got to sometimes suck up the embarrassment and just go for it and you never know what it might lead to so you've it's it's a bit of like take take some risks but also yeah don't don't overthink things and go for it go for it basically um, yeah exactly and you've done that very well now let's talk about the next step which is like creating this brand which you know from early on was stood out and you know matched that vision that you had mm. um how did you how did you spend all that hundred twenty thousand pounds on on creating the brand or what was the process yeah so the brand was uh, quite a different route, actually. So I've, I'd actually start, got the branding done just before the fundraise. So I worked for the great creative agency. And at the time, I remember rocking up to their nice office in Shoreditch, again, with about five quid in my back pocket. And I went for like a meeting with the, the two directors and got to know them and gave them my pitch about what it was I was creating and what I needed from a kind of, was hoping to kind of partner with a creative agency to get. And they sent me their what their proposal would be in terms of their fees, which obviously I definitely couldn't afford at that stage. And I ended up agreeing with them to, um, in exchange for the work that they would do to create the branding and all the packaging and the kind of principles that I'd need to start the business or the brand, they would also, um, in exchange, I would give them equity in the business. And that was actually my first round of small a small bit of finance that I took into the business. And it was it was great. It was such a good way to start because I would have never been able to afford what was such brilliant sort of foundations that they gave me in creating the brand that you see today. Um, and it also meant I had a really great relationship with this uh, branding agency who kind of have been on the journey with me as well. So it's definitely one more option because I, I do believe that if you have a strong particularly a food brand in particular, like needs to have really good branding to get cut through. And if you're going to spend your money anywhere at the, in day one, like spend it in your product, making your product as desirable and lovely and engaging and distinctive as possible, because that will only come back to you in like the long run. And if you think about the value that Pippinut is now created through the brand, it's a very good bit of investment that I did in those early days to get us off the ground because it's it is so competitive on the shelf it's so difficult to get cuts through um so you need to make sure your packaging and your brand works as hard as it possibly can um, so that's how I basically got the branding um to a point where I was happy to launch it into supermarkets it's another great example of this sort of leap of faith and like instinctive response to have because those things can go wrong quite quickly as well if suddenly you work with an agency you've you give them some sweat equity and then they yeah. don't deliver so so good judgment one thing i wanted to ask about that kind of valuable real estate on on packaging with food products is that from from day one you put no palm oil as it was a big piece of the communication i can see it's still yeah. there right front and center on the top of the jar on the mm. on the tab that you break why did you decide to do that when for a lot of people palm oil is not necessarily related to personal health or or it was like hard to understand the negative impact it was having on the world. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's still something I think a lot of people don't really realize is in 50% of products that you find in supermarkets has some form of palm oil or, or a derivative of. Um, for me, I guess it was a point of difference from my competitor set. I guess I was talking about earlier, like the small kind of gap I saw in the market. And I needed to be able to somehow communicate why our product was natural. So we get natural separation. Um, so sometimes the oil will, will sit on the top because palm oil basically acts as a sort of emulsifier of everything. And I actually think it's a bit of a talking point. Like you say, I think if you don't kind of flag kind of, I guess, um, something like that, it's hard to know. People don't necessarily also inquire as to what palm oil is. So it also helps drive that. But 
in our category in particular, like it was a, a, a distinct USP that we had over, say, our competitor set, like Whole Earth, for instance. Um, so we needed to make sure that that was clear in front and center. And it's been a founding principle, I guess, as a business. Like we obviously wouldn't use palm oil in any of our products because it's something we don't agree with environmentally. So um, I think as much as anything else, it's also now become really part of our DNA as a business. Yeah, and you've been proved right because I mean I remember talking with Richard Walker, the CEO of Iceland, about you know when they did that ad with the uh, the kid and the orangutans and that their homes being destroyed yeah. in Indonesia because of these massive palm oil plantations and people's livelihoods being disrupt uh, you know their food um, being being given over to palm oil and it, it's become this big conversation now. So you were you were ahead of that. Um, it's great that it's stuck as a core part of your brand. Um, and then and then tell me a little bit about around the creative of the of Pip and Nut itself. Was that sort of the name you had straight away? And how how does it been having your name? Was it deliberate? I'm going to have my name in here. Was it just a happy coincidence? How did it all come about? Yeah, so Pip and Nut was a name that I came up with myself. I was actually cycling on my bike, and I remember it coming to me whilst I was cycling through London. Um, and yeah, initially, I, I really wasn't sure about it. I was like, I'm not sure if I want to be front and center of this brand. And I'm not an extrovert by nature. So I was like, I don't think this is for me to be like the spokesperson for the business. So I've had to get over that. Um, but in reality, like, I think it's been a real asset for us. And you mentioned a little bit about female founders earlier and, and how actually Virgin Startups funding much more, more female founders, which was a joy to hear. But also, I think it's a real benefit to be able to be like, show you're an independent brand, show that you're a human being who cares about this product. And I think that naturally engages consumers as they get to know the person behind the business. So having your name in there really helps connect you intricately with your brand. Um, but the brand identity itself is this lovely kind of squirrel that's leaping and the, the, the tail of the pea, basically, the tail of the squirrel creates the pea of the Pippin nut. Yeah, you can see it there. And I loved it. It was one of the first um, sort of proposals that they they gave me when they were kind of presenting the brand. And it's great because the squirrel is leaping forward. So it has this like forward momentum because our whole brand is about positive energy. It's about what you eat is, is what you put in, not what you take out. That You know, that's our principle. So we're very positive as a brand. So it's leaping forward. All the lettering is leaning. So it's like the pea is like a swoosh of peanut butter if you're spreading it on toast. Like, And more importantly, it just has so much personality. Like the the squirrel itself allows us to talk in a very squirrely way. So we can have all this great tone of voice and distinctiveness um, to create that moat around our brand. So I think whenever you're thinking about branding, it's like, how can you create things that are intrinsically yours and recognizably yours so you can leverage them later down the line as you're building out you know, your brand world and maybe investing in things like advertising. So try and be distinctive, whether it's through the name or the actual identity itself, um, because it, like I said, it's a crowded space. You need to be able to kind of create personality with your brand and create emotions within your brand, which is what people people buy with their head and their heart. You know, it's not just, um, you know, looking at the price. You know, you need to feel something when you're buying something and create that connection. And you nailed it along with your designers right at that beginning. And I love that it hasn't, I mean, lots has changed, but that core, core branding yeah, and, and imagery sure. hasn't. So in terms of the head and the heart and the selling process, how did the how did it then go in terms of pitching and what was your strategy? Because for a lot of food and drink startups that, you know, there's so many different ways to try and get their product to market. What did mm. you do next? Yeah, I think it's uh, getting a product to market is for me about it's about building it. So you for me, we, our first customer Selfridges, very lucky that we won that that listing as our first listing. And, and that gave us this big credibility in the food and drink space. You know, Selfridges tends to be good on trends and they tend to back brands that are in that kind of like early emerging stage. So you can use that kind of case study to then sell to other smaller independent stores around London to then again, build that kind of foundation of really cool, really hip stores that help make sure that your product's in the right places. Because I think in the first six months in particular, or certainly here for me, it was like, use your distribution like marketing, like be seen where you need to be seen so that almost by association, you become cool. So uh, you see it happen with like lots of brands, like Oatly as an example, is a great, great, they're probably the best at it in the game because they are in every cool coffee shop. And constantly, if you associate that, you know, hipster coffee shop, you kind of think Oatly is pretty cool at the same time. So I think it's a really good, good one to think about don't rush too quickly to those supermarkets because you can't really go backwards you have to build those like quality premium 
kind of accounts so that you can make sure your brand is established as a premium brand. I think then when you've kind of got that as a foundation and hopefully built up some lovely bits of kind of PR and, you know, good social media traction and things that you can use to kind of create hype around your brand, I think that's when you can start talking to some of the major malts. And, you know, for us, it's about we first went to Ocado, they listed our brand and that got us then starting conversations with Sainsbury's and Holland Barrett. And each time you're kind of almost doing those building blocks, which gets you to the next door. And I think it's so important to make sure that as you are building a distribution, make sure you don't take on too much at once as well. Don't be too hungry because sometimes if you don't have necessarily the, the capital to be able to support the marketing required to raise awareness of you in, say, a Tesco's, you can quickly find yourself as quickly as you were in it, as quickly as you are taken out. So build right, because your- you're you, they're not gonna, they're just going to put you on the shelf. They're not necessarily going to guarantee the end of row marketing and and exactly. rest of it. And it's such a like mistake, which I think a lot of people from the outside looking in will often think: once you're in the Sainsbury's, you're it, you're made. But it's actually complete opposite. Almost like the job really starts when you get on shelf. Once you've got that listing, you've got to really hustle and make sure that people and consumers are taking it off shelf so that you get that really strong momentum and, and cut through in that retailer. So often what I've found has been really good is start in a small, say if you're going into Sainsbury's, if you get a listing with 200 stores, for instance, with maybe three products, it's, even though they've got many more stores, you know, up to 1,300 stores around the UK, like you can build a really strong rate of sale and case study in those 150 stores because they'll be the best stores that Sainsbury's have that they'll put you in. They'll put you in the places that you're most likely to get the highest rate of sale. And then you build out from there. If you go into the full estate, you'll find that your rate of sale will be diluted across stores that probably won't sell you. Um, So you'll find yourself looking not as compelling when you talk to your buyer about your performance. So yeah, have a think about how you kind of build your distribution in phases so that you make sure you succeed along the way. It's super strategic and presumably the advantage of having a product that has a what a one year shelf life mm-hmm. at least it, you know yeah. it does allow you to to work out that uh, the distribution over time um what does it what's the business model for nut butter then like um it, like how much did you were you sort of chasing fundraising versus how long did it take you to get into a, a sustainable profit making business yeah that's a good that's a good question uh probably too long to make profit bottom line profit um yeah we've raised about three and a half million over the course of the last sort of six years so actually relatively so we're, we're not that capital intensive uh we've been quite frugal with how we've um, spent our money but having said that we haven't necessarily been profitable for the for the journey of our business intentionally so as we've invested heavier in marketing um, brand awareness marketing in particular to really drive our our brand forwards and I think it's a tough one isn't it because food and drink by the very nature you have a lot of stock that you have to carry and mm. I do remember in like the first couple of years there were some tough moments when we launched into retailers and suddenly you find yourself like having sent you know hundreds of thousands of pounds of stock into retailers and then realizing they're not going to pay you for that stock for another 60 days and you've mm. had to put the batteries up front or something like that and it's difficult that scaling piece um so fundraising has enabled us to kind of scale as we make sure we can keep up with the demand but also invest at the same time in our team and our our marketing as well so i think again for me i've always wanted to have a brand that is national and, and has big reach and grows fast so i kind of the appetite to raise money was there as well but yeah i i have a love-hate relationship with fundraising it's both exciting but also terrifying and it takes you away from the day job, which I love. Um, and I don't necessarily, the pitching of your business is fun to some extent, but I'd much rather be in like the throes of running the company than necessarily talking to investors. But that's just uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I, th- I think what you've just described in terms of those cash flow chasms that you get, especially in um, when you're selling a food product to, a, to supermarkets, it's just the thing that stops so many people from going for it or if they go for it failing and so to to cross that chasm is a huge achievement um what about the just supermarkets though one thing is that they have got better with working with startups so i I don't want to put people off and say it's really hard because actually likes of sainsbury's and tesco and asda and morrison's they all have incubator programs now for startups so actually, they are much more well-equipped to, to work with you as an independent brand. And they have more flex than they've 
ever had before, especially post-COVID or during COVID around payment terms. So, you know, some, like Asda can give you 15 days payment terms, which is a godsend if you're going into there and you haven't, haven't got loads of cash floating around. So they are better. It's just about making sure you are negotiating as hard as you can, but also looking at the right opportunities and scaling in the right way if you don't want to take on investment. And do they ever try and negotiate exclusivity around around product? Absolutely, yeah. Lots of the retailers, if they are, if you've got a really exciting product, of course, they would love to just have exclusivity for like two years and keep you locked in. And unlike with anything, I guess you've just got to weigh up the, the, the benefits and the costs associated with giving a, a supermarket exclusivity. Sometimes it can be exactly the right thing you want to do and you can leverage loads of other things like advertising and you know, data and things like that when you're negotiating with a supermarket exclusivity. Um, but the downside is that you maybe don't build your brand as quickly in the wider market. So it's kind of up to you really when you weigh those things up. But it's certainly something if you wanted, you could offer them exclusivity for three months, six months, a year, depending on what it is you're trying to get over the line. Yeah, so lots of negotiation. Um, I'm curious to hear about whether the, you know, all the different nuts, and uh, you know, arm butters especially, yeah. Uh, when external forces, global food supply chains and markets shifted. Um, mm. Share a story or two about that and how you've had to react. Yeah, you know what? This has been one of my biggest lessons over the course of the six years is trying to like get used to riding, riding that roller coaster. I remember the first couple of years was an absolute nightmare like for us as a business. The, the year I launched, you know, California was really going through some bad droughts at the time. And the price of almonds just went through the roof. Like I, we weren't making any money, zero gross profit on our almond butter for at least a year because the commodity just, it, it just went through the roof. And I just got through that and that was tough enough as it was. And then Brexit happened a couple of years, a year after that. And that was awful because we were buying all of our products in euros and obviously you have to exchange it back into pounds. So the, the exchange rate went against the pound and I was really exposed. And I think, I think what I've learned a few things with this is firstly, there are just global, there will be always something happening, whether it's sadly, um, you know, what's happening at the moment with Ukraine or COVID or Brexit. And actually over time you realize these are just cycles and you just need to make sure you're building enough resilience into your business and yourself, whether that's making sure you do have strong enough margins when you launch the business, making sure that you've got strong partners who can support you in purchasing out you know, a year in advance with your commodities, for instance, um, ways that you can protect yourself um, are key. But also in your own individual, like, A, sometimes you just need to go through a few of those scary moments to kind of build your own resilience so that later down the line, for me, when stuff hits the fan, I tend to not really get wobbled too much by it unless it's something really awful because you've almost been through a few of the, the tumbles prior to that and it kind of has strengthened you because you can always reference the time where it was way worse six months, a year ago when we had that crap experience. So I think it is an inevitability that you will have those shocks along the way, but they are cyclical and, and you will come up against them all the time and you have to learn to ride the wave and, and start to build in, like I said, commercially a few more things that can help protect you, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're a, clearly a practicing stoic you know focusing on what you can control and letting go of what yeah, you can't um, talking of trying to control things or not tell us about how you've built your, your team of squirrels and um and and trying to build a culture around a very strong brand and you, yourself connected with it um yeah. how's that journey been and what what does the team look like today yeah so there's 25 of us um and they're you know been going seven years so it's been like a kind of slow growth of building people into the team and I say the first few years to be honest it is a very organic process the way that the culture you make and, and by the nature of the business it kind of almost sets the, the values that you are as a team so one of our values is keep it real and I think that always came back from the like early days where we were all doing events you're all pitching in packing the van you're packing boxes you're you're really all hands on deck. And I think that in the first few years almost creates that camaraderie that like is so great. And I get quite nostalgic about those years because they were so much fun. Um, and I think it's about the people that you hire fundamentally though, um, particularly in those early days, you need those entrepreneurial, you know, women and men that are really just gonna throw themselves headlong into it. You don't need experts, you just need great kind of attitudes and, kind of someone who gets what it is that you're doing and is willing to kind of be 
roll their sleeves up. So for me, it's finding the right people at the right time. And even now, when we hire for more senior people and, and have a more structured team, like if someone has all the kind of experience that you could ever possibly want, but doesn't have an attitude that has that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and meet sort of is sort of meeting our values, then they won't get hired. And I think you've got to hold yourself really, really accountable because it's that age old saying like one rotten apple it spoils the whole lot. So you've got to be fairly well, you know, slow at hiring people and try not so, to... So in that process, Pip, of the hiring, because you're absolutely mm-hmm. right, if you get it right, it's a game changer. If you get it wrong, it's a, it's a game changer in the other direction. What do you do? What, what, what's your, what, what do you do to figure out whether they're the right fit? Is it still that kind of gut instinct or do you have lots of different challenges? Yeah, you know what? I think in when I was hiring the first few people, a lot of the time it was like... <laughs> I used to do interviews in all, all sorts of different places because I didn't have an office that I was like happy to show anyone. It was just like, a crappy space. So I used to take them to pubs or, you know, random places to meet for, for you know, an interview. And it, by the nature of it, it was always way more relaxed. You kind of got to know someone a little bit more on a personal level. It was more of a conversation than it was like a hard and fast interview. And I still do a lot of that now. And I also think it can be quite telling. I remember hiring my, my FD, um, a few years ago and we met on a pub on a bank holiday weekend in August it was so loud I don't know why I did it I don't know why he met me on a bank holiday Monday but um yeah we met up and we were in this loud pub in Clapham and I remember at the time when he sat down he went to the bar to get himself a drink and he came back with a pint and I remember thinking that's bold um but I really liked it about him I thought it was like I don't know. I know that's a quite a specific example, but I guess there's something about trying to pull someone out of their like normal traditional interview where you're kind of sat opposite each other and it's really formal, but try and get to know them and see how they act in the real world. Like, do they speak to the waitress nicely? Do they, you know, have a drink when they're answering their financial questions about how to scale in- internationally? I don't know. It can tell you a little bit about someone. So I think that is, I think, an important thing. Um, now as well, I guess we make sure we, we get the rest of the team to vet the, you know, someone that's coming in. And I think it's kind of important to uh, make sure that you're really um, including the rest of the team so that you're not the only one also using your gut, but they're also helping as well. Absolutely. And presumably there's a great food culture at Pip and Nut. Absolutely, yeah. Like, if there is, yeah, if you don't like food, then you definitely shouldn't work for Pivot Nut. Like, it's such a central pivot, pivotal thing of our business. And, I mean, COVID has been difficult for that because normally, like, every single day, one o'clock, um, everyone sits down for lunch, regardless of what you're doing or how busy you are. Like, everyone sits down for lunch in our office and has has a meal together. Obviously, COVID has shifted that a little bit and we're sort of working out our post-COVID culture. But um, for me, like, sharing food is a really big part of of, of you know getting to know each other and and I think that's where culture is an interesting thing because it's I read the other day that culture is like how you communicate how you how you act together how you interact together and and it's not really any of the perks that's kind of all superfluous it's really about like how you treat someone when maybe um you're giving them feedback or how you take feedback or how you you know communicate with someone when you don't when you disagree with them like all these things are the way in which you're forming your culture and I think that's the sort of slightly intangible stuff but also things that you need to think about it's like do you want a flat structure in which case how do you create that and um things like having lunch together I think is one of those things which for me and and you can get lost in the complexity of those culture Mm. building tools and techniques and guidance and so on and what I love about uh, the way you describe your your team and community is is it's actually quite straightforward. It's core human values, but you've still got to put them into practice every day. Um, let's talk a little bit about where Pip and Nut is today and some of the really exciting innovations and impact work you've done in the last couple of years. So there's the B Corp, yeah. there's, um, uh, there's, there's the work you've done with food banks um, during COVID. And then on the, on the kind of innovation side, there's uh, we obviously in Tesco, but the Piparazzi, the TV ads, mm-hmm. uh, the glass jars. So you take your pick, but there's there's sort of a highlights package of all the things that you've been <laughs> up to recently. What's what's been um, what's what? Tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what what you highlighted really well. It's like I think it's such a great. I, I'm so lucky, and anyone that is running their own business, it's such 
a fun thing. So if I can imagine what we're doing now to what I thought running a business was when I started it, I wouldn't have imagined it. And it's so diverse and rich. Of, um, I, I love it. But yeah, I mean, for us, we're a B Corp, as you mentioned, we certified two years ago now. So we're recertifying again this year. Um, for me, that's, that was a big tipping point in my journey as an entrepreneur. You know, B Corp's about um, looking after the triple bottom line, people, planet and profit. So actually really starting to think, how do we truly deliver upon our purpose, but really deliver upon also making sure that we really shift what capitalism is and not assume that businesses are only there to make profit, but do more. So we're working on various lots of different things. Yes, there you go. There's the Peacock logo. Um, every jar. We, we are, sustainability is a big part of our next sort of few years. So we're working on our net zero ambitions at the moment. So looking at becoming net zero by 2040, but reducing our overall footprint um, by 56% by 2030, which is quite significant when you look at also the growth that you're looking to achieve. Um, but in is that mainly on import of the products? So 70% of that footprint, our carbon footprint comes from um, our, our ingredients. Um, so yes. things like our nuts and peanuts and almonds. So yeah. really tackling that will be like a big part of reducing our overall footprint. So that's, we're working a lot on that. Um, we're also looking at carbon neutrality and how we can, whilst we get to net zero, offset our um, overall footprint. Um, looking at kind of projects that are close to our core ingredients like nuts. So looking at regenerative agriculture, um, lots of things like biochar and interesting ways to kind of offset our carbon, which I'm very excited about. Um, but yeah, I guess as a wider brand, we've also got to make sure that we're raising awareness of our business more broadly um, and looking at how we can actively try and reach more people with our brand. So things like we just recently did a TV campaign in January, which was our biggest amount of spend we've ever spent in, a mo in any moment. And it almost made me sick um, signing up <laughs> for the budget. Um, what made you go for it? Was it the data or was it just like, I want us to be seen everywhere? I'm sure there was a bit of ego at play, unfortunately. But um, we had tried TV about a year, the year before with a smaller media budget and it worked really well, even on, the sm on a small level. So that, that kind of try and test model, which we've done since day one, made me think, actually, I think we can do this and spend a bit more and have a bigger impact for our brands. We'd also just got a Tesco listing and... Um, I was like, we're going to have to do something to make sure that we've got the awareness we need to make sure it sells. Um, so, yeah, it was a few things, I think, um, clicking into place for that one. But it's funny, those sorts of things never really get easier as you get bigger, because almost the risk of the money that you're spending, if it doesn't work, it's like, it's, 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 it sort of feels horrible to think you might burn that kind of money on and it not work. Um, so, yeah, those are big things like driving awareness in the UK, looking at new products um, outside of what we've already got as well is also another thing. But, yeah, we're very busy. And, and the diversity of the product itself now. So you, we mentioned a couple of things, but how do you decide? I mean, this is the fun experimental side, but how do you I mean, you get is it just based on the numbers of sold products mm -hmm. that you go, right, this one's working, this one isn't? What's yeah. the most successful nut butter? Which one have you ditched that didn't quite work? Yeah, I guess in the in the nut butter world, it's almost easier because we're so like immersed in it. It's quite e like it's easier to kind of come up with ideas and and kind of try and test things because we've already kind of got our kind of principles involved. I think what's almost harder is when you start to like diversify into other categories. So for us, right. we're looking at we, we've got a range of nut butter cups, which is like a confectionery range. And that's almost harder because like you've kind of got to learn a whole new space. Like how do people, you know, eat chocolate? What's important to them? Like, um, you know, what are the trends? Like, what do we do? What ingredients would we be happy to put in this? And that sort of thing where you can, you end up having to really think about your brand values, like, and think through how that applies to any product that you're making. Um, so, yeah, I find it's a lot of research. I still do a lot of wandering up and down the supermarket aisles to browse for inspiration um consumer research and and then just i guess that that's that gut feeling i think if you it's funny i think sometimes entrepreneurs think that they're kind of that saying where you're just a master of you know what's the saying it's a you kind of a it's jack of all trades basically and you feel that you've got no kind of real specialism but what you do have is like an intrinsic kind of like obsession and, and knowledge of, of probably your your brand and the world you sit in. And so you really can use your gut in a lot of innovation, I think, because you've got a good sense having been around it for so long that, of what your brand um, could do. 
Yeah, and as we learn at Rebel Book Club, your gut is your first brain, so we should try and listen to it more often. I love that. <laughs> um, so I wanted to finish with a couple of sort of personal questions, which I've been fielding questions and building them into the conversation from people online. So thank you, Pip, for for going in all sorts of directions with us this evening. But um, one of the questions is around being a solo founder versus a co-founder. Now, we, you yeah. shared about the, the community that you've built and your team, which sounds fantastic. But... How has that been? And would you, I know it's your, the only journey you know, but um, what's it like being, you know, ultimately the, the, the nut and the buck stops with you. So how have you managed that journey in terms of building your own resilience? Yeah, I think it is really hard. And I think I've, I, I do like running a business by myself, but I think it's always in those harder moments and in the, the, the highs as well that you wish you had someone to kind of share it with. And often more than anything else, like, having someone that you can have a really frank conversation with that understands your business and totally gets it, but you can be totally honest. I think it's something I, I do envy of people that have co-founders who can have that kind of relationship. I think what you have to do though, is make sure you just build a really good kind of support network, whether that be mentors, investors, or your, your team. But it probably is certainly if I did another business, I'd want to have a co-founder, maybe just to see the other side and what it's like. Um, the good thing is you can make decisions in an instant. You don't have to, if you don't, you know, you always agree with yourself. So you're never going to have that challenge of having to like mutually agree something. So that I think adds a bit of simplicity to it all. And you don't have the risk of falling out with yourself. So if you do have a massive bust up, you know, you've not I guess the challenge that people always think about as a solo founder is, is when you have low points, right? So, so when you're in the dip, whether it's mentally, emotionally, physically, or you're just lacking that creative interest in your product or, or brand, like how you pull yourself back up. What have you learned that's worked for you? Yeah, how do I pull myself up? I think um, I think perspective is always good if you can try and get some sort of formal perspective. And often that for me is like, speak to somebody else about the issue that you've got even if that's just a vent or download, but if they can give you a sense of perspective or remind you that it's not like the the world isn't in, you know imploding on you. Um, and I think um, I think probably as well ensuring that you do create some boundaries about your work, but and, and I think you get better about that as you mature in your business to some degree. So making sure that you aren't just living and breathing it all the time and have things outside of work that do pull you away and take you away. I don't have children, but I have a dog and, you know, my boyfriend and things like that. You need to make sure that you like ensure that you invest in them. So I think that can help as well. Um, I like the fact the dog comes before the boyfriend in your hierarchy of investment. I know, he's there first. So Charlie <laughs> takes precedent in most Wow, time. that's a crowd. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, and I, I wanted to, before, penultimate question, Pip, um, the food banks, the, the, so tell us about COVID um, and, and how you navigated that and then the, the the work you did with the food banks. Yeah, I think, I mean, we were lucky in COVID because we were a product that was sold in supermarkets that you eat at home. And so people were eating breakfast and at home way more, which meant the sales of nut butter went through the roof. So we were having to more manage like the back of the kind of, repercussions of that from a supply chain perspective which was also moving around with covid because you know factories having to change their ways of working with remote and or distancing and things like that so we that was definitely a frenzy and i think having a younger team we much more we're quite a young team i think that also put a pressure on on our team in terms of all, a lot of them living in small flats in london like you know you don't work for a, a brand like pippa nut if you don't want that like social interaction so suddenly having that pulled away from you overnight it meant that we had to completely think again about how we support our team. So I think those were like, for me, the biggest challenges and how to like lead within that remote world was something that um, I had to really rethink. And actually in lots of ways, I think helped me grow as a leader and really understand myself better and really grow up to some extent and, and really act like the leader of this business. Um, but one of the things that we did do, and, and I guess, you know, as a business that was, was thriving during COVID, it, and seeing lots of people and particularly in our local community really struggling it felt that we had to do something so we work and have now worked with Hackney Food Bank since the start of COVID um, where we make donations through our D2C so every order that you place on our D2C we will give a jar of pip and nut and we have things like a you give we give so you can on our website go and donate a jar of peanut butter 
to Hackney Food Bank and we'll match everyone. And, and the reason why we did it was because um, peanut butter is actually one of the essential items that they hand out in food, emergency food parcels that people collect mm. from Hackney Food Bank. Um, so it felt like a really meaningful way that we could actually genuinely help with a useful product that is nutritionally rich. And secondly, Hackney's our local, um, is, is down the road from us and felt like if you're gonna, you know, charity starts at home, and Hackney is one of the most diverse and poorest boroughs in London. So it felt like a really important place to start. So, yeah. And what sort I, of volume of, um, have you been, have you donated to the food banks? Um, I mean, last year we donated about 35,000 jars and our ambition is to donate 200,000 over the next three years. So we want to continue wow. to spend it on. Um, we do lots of campaigning for them as well, which is part of also, I think, making sure other people um, think about donating to food banks as well. It's so fantastic to hear about those values that you started pipping up with, um, you know, when you were 24, um, turning into scaled up impact and and yeah. business success, Pip. Thank you so much for sharing everything this okay. evening. Before you go, one more question from Alice. She says, if you were to start another business in 2022, what would you start, Pip? And I, you know, this is a tough one, right? Cause you're basically stripping away this, this huge identity, <laughs> which is your, which is That's your brand. I think, uh, I definitely love product, so it would definitely be a product-based business of some kind. I don't necessarily have that in mind, but I think I'd like to do something that avoided retailers. Not to say that they're not great. Um, do you like all the retailers? But I'd love to do something that was more D to C, more and and have to like, you know, circumnavigate them all together. So product is definitely in my DNA, and I, I'm not sure if I could step away from food. I'm basically avoiding answering your question directly. So which which it. niche should we explore, Pip? <laughs> oh that is a question something in the i don't know i think it'd, it'd have to be sustainable um i love all the stuff um like i love who gives a crap and the refillable stuff that's going on at the moment with like deodorants and i'm sure yes. there are more products like that that you could find a solution that is about removing the amount of packaging crap that is everywhere in the world so maybe something like that line but i haven't got it you, you're it. almost letting me plug uh, my new climate startup fundraising platform raise pip which i appreciate <laughs> i'm i'm enjoying the zero alcohol kind of food uh, sort of drink space because it feels like finally this is big drop which i'm drinking tonight it's like finally we've got a quality a bit like what you've done in the peanut butter world we've got premium quality values-based products that that taste all really good um, which we didn't have, you know, five years ago. So, um, you know, we had lime and soda in the pub, um, which reminds me, if you do bump into Pippa Murray in the pub in, in southwest London, um, you're likely to be interviewed for a job. So be prepared. <laughs> um, Pippa, thank you so much for being with Virgin Startup tonight. Uh, we really appreciate your time. And um, I've just really enjoyed following your journey. And I'm I, I love the leader, you know, that you've become in terms of um, you, you, it, it's like a you're you're very humble, but you've uh, you've created um, some big waves. So thank you for um, for keeping us well fed and inspired. <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks so much, Ben. Take care, Pip. See you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you found it useful, please share it with other founders and rate and review it online. For tickets to our next meetup, head to virginstartup.org. I look forward to seeing you there. <laughs>